Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's Strategica podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, bringing you content from Strategica, Hoover's online journal of national security and military history, which you can find at hoover.org. And in the most recent issue, we're tackling the question, what does North Korea hope to achieve by the possession of a few nuclear weapons? And here to discuss that with us today is Thomas Donnelly, director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and member of the Hoover Institution's Military History Working Group. Tom, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. All right, let's start with the mystery of North Korea's behavior. Uh, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, as you mentioned in your piece, recently quoted in the Sai Shimbun, Japanese newspaper, on the North Korean nuclear program. And he says, quote, we think you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money, and ruining your country just to have a few nuclear weapons. What's wrong with you? Now, Tom, we'll get to trying to answer the secretary's question in a little bit. But first, let's turn it around. Let's say I'm a layperson, doesn't pay much attention to international affairs. I look at North Korea, see them working on nuclear weapons and say, of course, it's a, it's a sign of strength. So what is it that causes Secretary Powell and a lot of other figures in the diplomatic world to look at this and say, it's bizarre. I can't make heads or tails of this. Why does it strike them as so strange? Well, I think you kind of have to be a diplomat in order to be puzzled uh, why otherwise weak states would want to get the biggest gun that there is. <laughs> um, uh, more likely, the layperson is looking through the right end of the telescope in this case. Um, look, North Korea it is about as impoverished, about as destitute a country as it's possible to be these days. Uh, but the one thing that they're capable of doing, A, is keeping the Kim family, who's been running the country for several generations now, uh, they're able to keep themselves in power. And they're able to keep the United States at arm's length, which is something that a lot of other countries, particularly since the end of the Cold War, have not been able to do. Uh, so if you look at the world through the North Korean eyes from Pyongyang's point of view, uh, this seems like the absolute best way um, to make sure that nobody bothers you. And, and you do that in this piece. You look at the psychology of North Korea or at least the leadership in North Korea and you point out that they fear two things. What are those? Well, most of all, they feel their own people uh, and probably with very good reason. Um, other tyrannical regimes, autocratic regimes, as we see all the time, and particularly in the Middle East, uh, are falling like houses of cards. Um, so the North Koreans have done taken every step they possibly can think of to try to isolate their people from the rest of the world, lest they find out uh, what the modern world really looks like, and toss them out of power. Um, and they send people to the gulags, they starve their own people. It, it's raised a horribly repressive regime uh, and by any measure uh, possible. But they also fear uh, the United States and America's allies uh, who surround them. Um, who are examples of successful East Asian capitalist democracies. Um, and, and they just fear the military power of the United States. They've seen our ability to um, uh, depose people we don't like, Saddam Hussein being the 
possible classic example of that, but also the Milosevic regime in, um, in the Balkans. Uh, and so they quite rightly fear that um, uh, if we just decide to, uh, you know, we can be unpredictable and uncertain and inconstant. Uh, but when we decide to get rid of somebody, we've pretty much been able to do that, um, uh, even in cases, uh, and again, Iraq's the perfect example of this, where we thought the conventional military balance was a lot closer than it actually was. So they're impressed by our conventional military power, and the way that they try to deter us is by possessing a nuclear weapon. So one way to look at North Korea's nuclear arsenal is to say it'd be insane for them to actually use these weapons. But as you point out in your piece, they do serve an entirely different purpose and one at which they're pretty effective even if they'll never be launched. Explain what that is. Well, they ha- you know, again, just to sort of watch their behavior, we've seen them essentially blackmail us, the Japanese, the South Koreans, even the Chinese to a certain degree uh, by sort of threatening to do crazy things, occasionally doing crazy things like uh, attacking South Korean islands or sinking South Korean warships uh, or taking Japanese you know, people prisoner. Um, and, and, and they just do that to sort of, you know, they're sort of like the crazy uncle in the attic. Uh, uh, you know, it sounds kind of silly and people tend to treat the North Koreans as sort of fools, but uh, again, they've been remarkably successful um, in walking this tightrope and uh, keeping the outside world at bay, uh, which is critical, again, for uh, the regime in order to survive. To that point, particularly to the point you just made about them being treated like fools, there has long been that sense of North Korea as so deeply dysfunctional as to be almost comic if it wasn't for the abject suffering that the regime causes for its citizens. And this is, as you pointed out, for the most part, uh, as closed as closed societies get in in the modern world. And we have spent decades now anticipating a collapse and at many points in time acting as if it was imminent. To what do you attribute the fact that it it's never come? Um. Uh, I think it's probably been a pretty close-run thing uh, at times. Uh, again, North Korea went through a devastating starvation, almost unthinkable in the modern world uh, in the late 90s. Um, and there's so much that we don't know about North Korea. We don't know you know, what's going on inside their bunker or really inside their society uh, very well. Uh, so it's very difficult to assess uh, how strong the regime really is. But we should also take a lesson from what's happened uh, to other, you know, the, there's a whole generation of sort of post-World War II dictators, uh, you know, from the Soviets on down, uh, where the, these autocratic and tyrannical regimes have just collapsed of their own weight or fall into an internal revolution from below, from their own people, uh, but by hook or by crook. And uh, I'm not a North Korea watcher or uh, you know, go crazy if I, if I looked 
more closely at it sometimes. I think <laughs> people who do that are just, you know, morose and perverse. Uh, but you have to give them credit for survival. Um, um, and I think at this point, expecting North Korea to collapse uh, is certainly going against all previous experience. And it may happen tomorrow. It would be great if it did, except that chaos would likely ensue. I mean, North Korean collapse is almost as frightening uh, to outsiders as, you know, I hesitate to call the current regime stable, uh, but it's been durable. Uh, so if the regime did collapse, that also, uh, you know, while it would be good for humanity, it would be a you know, strategic nightmare. Could you um, could you explain that a little bit? Could you just walk us through well, some of the consequences imagine, that I mean, people fear? Imagine even the most benign regime collapse in North Korea, one that didn't involve a struggle for power or a lot of bloodshed. Uh, you know, the Korean Peninsula is still strategically important. Uh, Koreans are intensely nationalistic people. South Koreans, uh, you know, even though it would bankrupt them to try to reconstruct uh, – North Korea along a modern uh, set of lines would feel obligated to, to try to unify the Korean people on the peninsula. The Chinese would care a lot. So would the Japanese and so would we. I mean the whole region would care and there would be kind of a mad dash uh, to see who could exert uh, control on the ground uh, in North Korea. And the South Koreans are there but the Chinese are right across the border as well. Um, I, I think it would be, uh, you know, myopic not to anticipate that the Chinese would move in. They would claim that their own security was at issue, and they'd they'd be right. Uh, but they'd want to be play the role of a kingmaker, if you will, in a uh, you know post Kim unified Korea, uh, which would threaten our strategic interests. Would put the South Koreans in a very difficult position, make the Japanese nervous as cats. The, you know, the relationship between Japan and China and Japan and South Korea is already on pins and needles. Um, uh, so, again, there would be sort of a mad scramble over the car- carcass of North Korea and uh, such an unstable circumstance that it would be a miracle if people didn't wind up shooting at one another even accidentally. Tom, in, in terms of resources, North Korea has a million-man army, uh, tens of thousands of artillery pieces that are within range of Seoul. So what is the – what's the marginal benefit of the nukes? What does that get them that the conventional resources don't? It, well, I think it's measured more psychologically, politically, and strategically than it is militarily. Right. They are hugely militarized. It also tells you that the North Korean army is really – as much or more about uh, controlling the North Korean people and creating a structure for North Korean society as it is invading the South or repelling an invasion northward. But for a country that's so militarized and has such a large conventional force to basically you know, tell itself that it needs something more, something even more terrible than a conventional war on the peninsula would be. I mean uh, – Again, even before the North Koreans acquired nuclear weapons, um, the prospect of war on the 
Peninsula would have been just catastrophic uh, for the South Koreans, uh, even if the war ended, um, you know, with a North Korean defeat. The level of destruction would have been horrific. But it tells you something that the North Koreans didn't think that even that level of conventional military strength was sufficient. And that's a pretty strong testament to the value of nuclear weapons, even a few, even primitive weapons. And and to that point, uh, you mentioned earlier the lessons that North Korea took from the example of Iraq. You suggest in your piece as well that in turn Iran has now taken some lessons from the North Korean experience. Explain that a little bit. Well, I think the entire world has taken lessons from, from that experience. I mean if you're really worried about or have been worried about um, American meddling or intervention um, – uh, and and even if you had a you know, pretty modern conventional force, the way Saddam Hussein did, and the way actually few others really do, uh, the cheap, quick, easy, and you know sort of foolproof way uh, to keep the, Mer- the Americans from meddling in your business is to acquire a nuclear deterrent. Um, if it's one thing that scares us, as we say out loud all the time. It's nuclear proliferation. So we broadcast very plainly what our fears are, uh, and people who have reason to fear us uh, are paying attention. The final question that I'll ask you, if you're having this discussion, for example, in the the National Security Council, what are, if any, uh, the available policy routes for the United States that could – you know, if not solve this problem, which is probably off the table, but at least make it better. In, in other words, are there good options for us on the policy front as to how to deal with the situation with North Korea going forward? No, they're, they're not really either good policy uh, approaches. I mean, administrations of both parties have tried basically any combination they can think of from being tough to uh, uh, appeasing, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just a descriptive way. Um, I'm impressed, too, by former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, who argued for, uh, in the mid-90s, a preemptive attack that would have uh, destroyed the North Korean nuclear capability before it matured uh, and before it was dispersed and hardened and spread out, when essentially the risks of an attack would have been much, much less. Um, and he's not, you know, he's hardly a neoconservative warmonger or anything like that. Uh, and he sort of constantly and frequently and publicly regrets not having intervened when the time was more propitious. But we are where we are now. Um, and if you did exercise a military option in North Korea, uh, the, you know, the notion of a precision strike um, is perhaps more narrowly appealing than, say, it would be in Iran in the sense that the number of targets is lesser. But again, you would unleash chaos in, on the Korean peninsula. So it's highly likely that that would be the last act in the in the drama. And that underlying military conundrum makes the policy 
options much less appetizing and the range of policy options um, you know much smaller and more narrow but again it's like trying to talk your crazy uncle out of the attic or off the ledge <laughs> but but a guy you know crazy uncle with a very big gun all right our guest has been thomas donnelly director of the maryland ware center for security studies at the american enterprise institute and member of the hoover institution's military history working group you can read his commentary on North Korea as well as that of Walter Russell Mead and Barry Strauss in this most recent issue by visiting Strategica at hoover.org. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening. <laughs>